from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today is Tuesday, October 23rd. We are two weeks away from Election Day. And when it comes to Election Day 2018, a thing that I have been hearing for months is this. A record number of women. A record number of women. A record number of women are running this year. All these women running, I think it's... Seems everyone is saying that 2018 is the year of the woman. Record numbers of female candidates. Data indicates female voters are incredibly fired up. The Me Too movement is on a lot of folks' minds as they prepare to walk into voting booths. And the resistance to President Trump, in many ways, is fueled by women. So today we're going to talk about it. Is 2018 a year of the woman? And if so... How? This episode, I'm interviewing not one, but two female candidates for higher office about what it means to run as a woman right now. Republican Elizabeth Hang, she's running for Congress in California. She's a 33-year-old daughter of Cambodian refugees. Also talking to Democrat Stacey Abrams. She is running in Georgia to become the first black female governor ever in America. You'll hear from both of them in just a bit. But first, I wanted to figure out exactly what we mean when we call 2018 the year of the woman. So I called up my friend and NPR colleague, Danielle Kurtzleben. She's been covering women and politics all year. Danielle Kurtzleben, how are you? I am great. How are things in California? Delightful, per always. I I imagine, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So... I brought you here to talk about the year of the woman, mm-hmm. which is what everyone is calling these 2018 midterms. Uh, n- uh, not me, but yeah, that's what people are calling it. <laughs> we can get into that, but yeah. Yes, I want to. Good. But first, what do people who do use the phrase year of the woman mean when they say that? Look, first of all, one thing that I've been saying this year, and it's true, is that there is a an absolutely record-breaking movement of women running for office this year, Uh, whether it's the U.S. House, U.S. Senate, governorships, statewide elective office, women have absolutely not just broken records. They have absolutely blown past old records in really Mm. bonkers ways, uh, I think is the political science term for it. Yeah. Can Uh, you give me some numbers that kind of speak to that? Yes. So let's look at the U.S. House, for example. This is one of the most fascinating ones. So the last record for the number of women nominees for the U.S. House, you had 167 women running for House seats in 2016. So the last time that we did this. This year, you have 235. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, wow. and and an even more epic number to come out of that is when you when you break this down by party, overwhelmingly, it is Democrats driving this. When you look hmm. at the numbers on the Democrat side, mm-hmm. this year, there are 183 Democratic women running for House seats. In 2016, there were 120. So Hmm. it broke that record by 50 percent. Yeah. Now, you said earlier when I brought up the phrase year of the woman that you don't use that phrase. I don't. What's that about? I don't love it. Part of it is like, you know, we're journalists. We don't need to traffic in cliche. We're better than that. Am I right? (laughs) This whole episode is a cliche, Danielle. No, 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 no. This is the year of the woman episode. Well, find a better title, Sam. No, um, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. But like. I mean, for one thing, if you look just at voters, every year is the year of the woman. Women mm. always outvote men. They snaps to the women. That's uh, that's voting. absolutely true. Now, are women well represented? Absolutely not. I mean, women have never been president. W- women are underrepresented in governorships, etc. Women are one in five, roughly, members of Congress, while women are, like I was just saying, just over half of the electorate. Aside from that, I mean, advocates, bipartisan advocates of getting more women into government will say, listen, if you call it the year of the woman, it implies that 
this only happens once, that it's this mm. grand planetary alignment thing that only happens as if, you know, getting a bunch of people who make up half the population at least to run for office is some sort of a really massively out there thing when really hmm. it isn't and it doesn't have to be. All right. With that in mind, let's get to my first chat with Republican Elizabeth Hang. This is her first time running for higher office. And to introduce herself to voters in California's 16th district, she used this ad. In Cambodia, under Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge, being young and single often meant a gruesome life and likely death. They approached my father and in order to save his life, he said he was about to be married. They asked him, to whom? He pointed to the prettiest girl that he saw, having never spoken to her before. The soldiers approached her, and she said yes. They got married the very next day. There's a lot in this Boy, ad. My goodness, yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of this is not about gender, right? I mean, uh, from a very basic logistical level, if you're a first-time candidate like Elizabeth Hang or a, a lot of these women, you want to make a quick impact, tell people who you are, and get it to stick in their minds and get them to, you know, like you with that impact, by the way, right away. All right, so a bit more about Elizabeth Hang. Like we said, she is 33 years old, Stanford grad, former congressional staffer in D.C., and she's running in California's 16th congressional district, Central Valley of California, Fresno area. Hang's parents own a grocery store there. And she told me a few years ago she left D.C., moved back home, and that's when she decided to run. I came back to reconnect with my family here in the Valley. I was planning on jumping right back into the private sector because I was kind of done with Washington, D.C. But when I came back and it was truly sitting at that grocery store counting mm. products yeah. <laughs> with uh, no English name on them and trying to figure out how to program them in the computer and the iPads, I saw that our community was struggling with the exact same problems that we have been plagued with for decades now, whether that's economic poverty or education. Here in the Valley, we don't have water for our ag and community. And a, another big one was immigration. For far too long, I believe that both Democrats and Republicans have punted this topic with immigration in our country. I understand Hang is receiving a lot of attention in Republican right. circles because she is a young woman like of color running as a Republican in 2018. But she's walking a real tightrope in a state like California and even in her own district. So we're going to hear about 10 minutes of me chatting with Hang right now, and then I'll be back with Danielle with some thoughts. This district is, what, 60% Hispanic. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton won this district in 2016, 58% to 36%. How likely is it that a Republican, any Republican, even yourself, can win in that kind of district, especially knowing how Hispanic voters have been trending in light of Donald Trump's continued incendiary remarks about immigration and Mexicans. 
Yeah. So in this congressional district, I think it is highly competitive mm. with respect to immigration. That's my number one issue. I have gone up and down um, this congressional district talking about immigration because for far too long, it's been long overdue. Right. With DACA recipient, every facet of immigration is broken. DACA, H-1B visas for our tech industry, for our farmers and guest worker program, for our border and national security. Every facet of it is broken. What I would say is that my opponent to date has never introduced a new idea to make immigration reform work for our community. And I believe that message is resonating incredibly well um, here locally and that we're going to flip the seat come November. The loudest voice right now in the Republican Party on immigration is President Trump. Um, And he seems to set the tone for how the rest of the party seems to talk about and think about these issues. How in line are your stances on immigration with his? Look, I, you know, overall, like... I will agree with the president when I do, and I won't where I won't. Um, So the proposal in which I will introduce when I become a member of Congress would be to significantly move forward more visas for our ag and tech industries. Um, And so that's kind of where I would be with that. I'm very pro-immigration. I'm anti-illegal immigration. I'm pro-solutions. But I do believe it needs to be tied to border and national security so that we fix immigration once and for all. Yeah. Um, there has been some pretty awesome coverage of you in your campaign. Uh, a writer in the Wall Street Journal called you a potential Ocasio-Cortez for the GOP, not your father's Republican. Um, should you win, I'm sure you can already predict now the type of coverage you'll get, you know, the new face of the GOP. How do you feel, of, uh, how do you feel about that coverage and the potential for that type of coverage? Look, I appreciate all of the national attention that this race has received, but at the end of the day, I'm getting into this race because I want to help my community and represent this congressional district. And I'm going to fight for water and immigration reform and those education policies that work for this valley. That's what I want to spend most of my time on. Yeah. Um, I do know that I hear you telling me this is just about the issues, but in some ways... Your existence as a candidate in the Republican Party who is this close to winning is a rarity. Um, We know that of the more than 600 women who are running for Congress and statewide office this fall, fewer than two in 10 is Republican. We know that your party has a lingering problem recruiting and helping win candidates of color. Do you think that your party is helping make way for more people like you. I'll be honest, everyone has been so supportive of my race that I feel very blessed in a lot of ways. Uh, I had to, you know, make my rounds in Washington, D.C. very early on in the race to go let them know that I'm running for this race. And if I could receive support, I had no problem getting meetings with the uh, leader McCarthy and Whip Scalise and all of the different individuals um, who have been leaders of the party. And I do believe that they do. They want to encourage young people. They want to encourage minorities and women and everyone. Are they doing a good job of that? 
to to get into the race. Yeah. You know, when I got into this race, I didn't think, and I think the narrative is this, right? Oh, there's we need to run for office because we're women. I agree that we need women in office. But mm-hmm. when I got into this race, I didn't think to myself, hi, I'm a woman, therefore I'm running. I got into this race because I believed we needed change and we needed solutions. Yeah. Much has been made in the press that midterms 2018 may in many ways be an election all about women. And this might be a year of the woman, particularly in light of the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, particularly in light of the uptick in women running for office this year. Um, At the same time we're seeing those headlines, we are seeing polling data week after week that seems to indicate the GOP is hemorrhaging women voters and having a hard time um, appealing to them right now. Uh, Do you think your party is speaking to women well right now? That's a good question. Hmm. When I think about the messages that are currently out there, I believe it's important that we always have representatives that represents all facets of society, right? And I know earlier you were discussing about ethnicity, of having more women, and I that's why I'm running for this race. You know, I'm a woman. You know, that wasn't the original reason why I thought yeah. I could step up. Mm-hmm. But it's so important to have people at the table because if, in fact, you're not at the table, you're basically on the menu, right? And yeah. that's a saying that we always said in Washington, D.C. So as we are having these hard discussions, let's say with the Me Too movement, for example, it, it it's it's important to have those voices that are heard, but it's, you know, it's also important to have individuals that can look at it in a very judicious way. Yeah. And so I want to be a part of that discussion and increase those. And I, when I flip the seat, I will help increase those numbers of having somebody that could look at it from a very different framework. And so that's why I'm running for office. Yeah. I hate to belabor this, but I, but I will say I hear a certain disconnect. Your experience with the party has been very positive, and they've offered you support. But particularly among suburban women voters, suburban white women, they are seeing the party as not as friendly to women as the party has seemed to be for you. Why do you think that disconnect exists? I'll be honest, I'm not sure on that. Um, But as I've been talking to, because when I walk around and I talk to suburban women and women of all ethnicities, they're going back and talking about fundamentals. And that is putting food on their table for their children, making sure that their kids are going to school. They're not dropping out. They're not joining gangs and that they have opportunity. So although I consistently hear this in the media of the Republican Party are not aligning in that direction with people, the message that I'm getting as I'm knocking on doors on both sides of the aisle Mm -hmm. is that this is the area in which they want to focus. They want leaders that will figure out solutions and provide more opportunities. Many thanks to Elizabeth Hang, Republican running for Congress in California's 16th District. Back here now with Danielle Kurtzleben. Danielle, how unusual of a candidate is Elizabeth Hang? 
I'd say she's pretty unusual. Yeah, I mean, okay. the Republican Party does not have a lot of women running, and also, I mean, relatively speaking, and it also doesn't have a lot of women of color. She talked in that interview a bit about, you know, she isn't embracing Trump super tightly either, which a lot of Republicans this year are. So in that sense, she also sits apart from the pack a bit. Totally. There are questions about whether a candidate like her can be the future of the GOP in California or nationally. You know, even if she loses, does she represent a new face for this party or not? Well, One of the big questions being asked of the Republican Party is if there's a chunk of women they might be losing for good or if they've alienated some women, you know, for example, by embracing Trump, who many women don't like. And if you talk to Republicans, Republican strategists, Republican voters, I'll often ask Republican voters who are, you know, voting for a woman candidate. And I'll say, does it matter to you that she's a woman? Do you are you excited to vote for a woman candidate? Republicans almost always tell me, no, it absolutely does not matter. Like, I, I just want someone who's qualified. It can be a woman. It can be a man. They can be brown. They can be white. doesn't matter. So and that's what she's saying. Yeah, well, absolutely. And so uh, as far as her being the future of the Republican Party, I think a lot of Republicans might sort of reject the premise of the question. I mean, the idea for them is that the future is purely about, you know, qualifications and issues. It's not about the Republican Party trying to specifically trying to appeal to a particular group. All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, Danielle returns and we'll hear from Democrat Stacey Abrams. She's running to become the first black female governor in the country. BRB. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. I just interviewed Melissa McCarthy. This is what happens when you corner a rat. You corner me, I will chew through you. I'll chew through you. Yikes, thank goodness she's not that way in person. You can find our interview in the Fresh Air feed. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. Earlier, we introduced you to Republican Elizabeth Hang. She's running for Congress in California. I want to move now east to Atlanta. That is where Stacey Abrams was when I talked with her recently. Abrams is a Democratic candidate for governor, and she has exciting women all over the country. All right. Stacey Abrams, can you hear me in your headphones? I can hear you quite well. Great. If you can just So in the last few weeks, Abrams' opponent for governor has been making headlines. His name is Brian Kemp. He's currently Secretary of State in Georgia. And as Secretary of State, he's responsible for enforcing election laws. Kemp's office is currently blocking the voter registration of more than 50,000 people for small clerical discrepancies, like a missing hyphen in their name. Many others have been knocked off the rolls by Kemp's office for becoming inactive or not voting in previous elections. That could affect tens of thousands more voters. The majority of those affected are black, and they tend to be Democratic voters. Kemp's office says he's just enforcing the laws and that activists were sloppy in registering new voters. Civil rights groups have filed a lawsuit against Kemp in response. We taped our chat with Stacey Abrams before all that news came out, but the race in Georgia was already dramatic. Polls have it basically neck and neck in a state that hasn't elected a Democratic governor since 1998. 
and that's gone Republican in every presidential election from 1996 on. So I asked Stacey Abrams if her momentum is driven by women. Here's our chat. I think what happened in 2016 was that the election results put into sharp relief how important it was for people to vote, especially women, especially people of color, uh, communities that were vulnerable in some way. And so while I'm deeply proud of all the women who are running for office and who are being elected, I'm also incredibly proud of all the people of color who've mm. broken through what have been you know, decades or centuries, in my case, of um, barriers. And so where I think the year of the woman and the year of communities of color, the year of the vulnerable, the common theme is that we have a right to be heard and a right to be represented. And we're not going to wait for someone to do it for us. A thing that I noticed is that you did not say the word Trump in that answer. And this is a thing that I think a lot of candidates across the country are having to grapple with, even in statewide or local races. What is your strategy with that? Well, it, it, for me, it's not a strategy. I've been working on this for almost a decade. And I think for a lot of folks, Donald Trump and his policies reminded us that what we enjoyed for eight years under President Barack Obama, what we thought would continue under President Clinton, had a shelf life. He's not someone I mention very often because he's not in my state. What's in my mm. state are state legislators who are passing laws that make it more difficult for women to exercise, exercise reproductive freedom. Legislators and a secretary of state who are rescinding access to the right to vote. Yes, he certainly is generating some enthusiasm on the ground. But again, it's because he's proof that elections do matter and they do have consequences. I definitely hear you. But it seems to be that for Republican voters, particularly his base, particularly some southern or rural white voters, they are thinking about Trump a lot. When you try to convince some of those voters in your state that you deserve their vote, do you have to talk about Trump with them? And if so, how do you talk about Trump then? I will address his policies. I think tariffs are terrible for agriculture, and Georgia's number one industry is the agriculture industry. So I talk to farmers about why he is creating a false trade war. When I have a conversation about why we have to expand Medicaid, it is in the context of the fact that we have a leader who is trying to rescind access to health care and return us to a time where pre-existing conditions meant that you weren't entitled to health care. And so for me, it, it's about context, but it's not about him as a person. It's not even really about um, you know his putative leadership. It's truly about what does that mean in terms of how do we move Georgia forward? I have talked to Republican candidates and talked to Republican thinkers who have told me about the really interesting song and dance that some candidates for office across the country have to do to be Republican but distance themselves from the top of the Republican Party. Um, there seems to be, maybe to a lesser extent, a distancing of some Democrats from the National Democratic Party in the midterms as well. Um, something you said recently uh, was that Democrats are losing elections. Quote, because as a party, Democrats have been trying to recreate the coalition that last elected Bill Clinton. What do you mean by that? And is that a swipe at the DNC? No, no, no. It's not intended as a swipe as much as it is a, um, a diagnosis. Mm. In the Deep South, the mm. last time we won on a presidential level was Bill Clinton. 
And the last time Georgia elected a governor was 1998. Uh, And in both of those elections, 92, 98, the coalition of voters just looked different. And part of what we're seeing, not only playing out in my race, but playing out in Andrew Gillum's race in Florida, playing out in uh, David Garcia's race in Arizona, is that a new coalition of voters are stepping forward. But traditionally, both candidates and the party have really looked to do what worked the last time. My point is, it's been a long time since that worked, so let's mm. look for something else. Mm. Uh, but I am pleased to have the support of the DNC. It's been true that there's been friction, but I think it's incumbent upon all of us to keep our eye on what's at stake in 2018. You mentioned that friction. What are the biggest friction points for you? I'm thinking of some hot-button issues that Democrats in other parts of the country are talking about that might not play well in Georgia. Abolish ICE or impeach Trump tomorrow. Like, are there moments in which other Democrats are getting in your way in terms of messaging? They're not because I'm very clear about my message. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really one of... The narratives I want us all to understand, there's this clamor for there to be a single democratic message as though there's one tagline that will unite us all like Lord of the Rings. (laughs) That's not possible. What's true are our values, the democratic values that cut across every region and every state, the values of believing that education is transformative and that everyone has access the belief that healthcare is a right and not a privilege. Those are the values that drive us. How we talk about it depends on where we live. This political season has raised a lot of questions about how men, how politicians, how we as a country deal with sexual assault and abuse. And Democrats have, you know, been pretty forthright about where they stand on these kind of things. Uh, Has the rise of those issues in the front of mind for lots of folks and the Kavanaugh hearings, has that affected how you're campaigning and what you're talking about on the trail? I I think that the Me Too movement writ large, the Kavanaugh hearings most recently, require that we give very sharp attention to sexual violence, to sexual harassment, and to our responsibility as Americans to protect women and to protect anyone who's a victim of sexual violence. And this is a moment for us to find our better selves and to create space so that women and men don't have to hide in the shadows. That's what this moment should be. In thinking about that, it's also a time where a lot of people across the country are thinking about having a clean house. And, you know, we talked earlier about the coalition that Bill Clinton um, created in 92. Do Democrats, to really own this issue and be forward on this issue, need to have more of a reckoning with men like him who were still in the party's ranks? I I think that we have to continue to have conversations about our history, but we also have to leverage this moment to prepare for our future. And my belief is that What we saw in the Kavanaugh hearings was not an attempt at reckoning or planning. It was a woman revealing her deepest pain and a man having a temper tantrum uh, because he didn't, he thought he deserved not to even face questions. And I think any woman who brings this forward should be listened to. 
I, I think within the ranks of the Democratic Party, we have a lot of folks that we have to continue to address their past and talk about how we prevent this from ever happening in the future. And I would like to continue to be part of the leadership that makes that so. Thanks again to Stacey Abrams, Democrat running for governor in Georgia. Time for one more break. When we come back, I talk with Danielle Kurtzleben about this year of the woman and what we can learn from the last year of the woman, 1992. Support for NPR and the following message come from ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. based on hiring sites with over 1,000 reviews on Trustpilot. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com minute. More than 20 years. That's how long Olympic gymnastics doctor Larry Nassar abused the girls and women who came to see him for treatment. Believed, a new podcast from Michigan Radio and NPR, digs into how he got away with it for so long. So, Danielle, we heard Stacey Abrams talk about the Me Too movement and coming off these confirmation hearings for Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Do we know if those hearings actually change anything in the minds of women voters on either side? That's a very good question that I've been spending the last week or so, more than the last week, uh, trying to get my arms around. I mean, anger and frustration among Democrats was already at a 10, at least. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like it's going to inspire anybody to vote extra. What it might do, though, is inspire people to get out more, go out and door knock more and canvas more, uh, which might inspire more, um, more voter turnout on the left. Now, among Republicans... There's mixed polling data on whether this has energized Republicans more. It very well may have. And this is something that we're just going to have to keep watching more. But even if it's a marginal effect on either side, a lot of this year's races are toss-ups and a lot of this year's races are going to be won on the margins. So we have now heard from two candidates for higher office, a Republican and a Democrat, even though you're not sure if you want to call this a year of the woman, there was a uh -huh. previous year that was called the year of the woman. I'm talking about 1992. This wave election put a lot of women in Congress. It came after the contentious confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court following a sexual harassment scandal that he had to deal with uh, back then. Are there any comparisons to draw between this year of the woman and that one? Uh, yes and no. I mean, because back then, w women were kind of uh, starting from zero or near zero. There were so mm. few women in Congress back mm. then. So I'm looking back at my nominees numbers here. It went from 69 nominees in 1990 to 106 women nominees in 1992. That's that's just not that many. This year, a reminder, we have 235 nominees. So, oh, wow. This is like the year of the double woman. Yo, and even then, though, not even half of the candidates this year are women. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's the other funny thing about calling this the year of the woman, just to get back to that, is that like when you when you think about it on a very basic level, women are underrepresented in Congress, which means that very basic parts of the human and the American experience are underrepresented in Congress. And so you can see why there is this way of thinking that, yeah, putting more women in Congress might change what Congress pays attention to. 
If you want to hear more of Danielle's reporting on women and midterms 2018, you can find her on Twitter at... Titonka? Titonka. T-I-T-O-N-K-A. And all of her journalism is on NPR.org and in the feed for the NPR Politics Podcast. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again to Danielle. She will be very busy on election night, Tuesday, November 6th. Turns out I will be too. I'm going back to D.C. Uh, to host some of NPR's live coverage of the midterms. You can hear me and my friend and friend of the show, Sarah McCammon. Uh, we'll be on the air on your local NPR station from 9 p.m. to midnight Pacific time. Uh, it'll be great listening for you West Coasters. We'll be talking with Danielle and other folks from the NPR politics team. Uh, you can tune in for all the results and analysis and everything else you want to know. All right, refresh your feeds this Friday for our weekly wrap. Till then, thanks for listening. Talk soon. <laughs> 